Hello and welcome to the Perusia podcast. I'm Shabal Reis, your host, and very excited to introduce you to our guest, uh, who's been on a couple of times now. But uh, it is Father Robert Spitzer, and he's the founder of the Marger Center and an apostle that's really aimed at bringing the truth to science, faith, and reason, and, and looking at how science complements our faith and looking at evidence for God's existence and evidence for the soul and evidence for so many great supernatural things. Uh, today's topic, we're going to talk about the Shroud of Turin and also its link with the resurrection of Christ. Uh, and so let's dive into that today. I think it's a great topic as we lead into Lent um, and prepare for Easter. So let's uh, welcome Father now. Hello, Father. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Charbel. Thank you again for the opportunity. Thanks for joining us. Um, uh, it's been amazing just learning and discovering more and more of what you're doing at the Marger Center, Incredible Catholic. Uh, I mean, very, very quickly, uh, just uh, to sum up for those who are not familiar with the Marger Center, what exactly do you do there and, and how can people get involved? The Marger Center is oriented predominantly at giving resources um, that uh, can be used for uh, various topics of evangelization. But most of our work is in the area of intellectual evangelization, intellectual conversion. Um, and uh, we do have resources for spiritual and moral conversion. And we have much fuller resources in spiritual and moral conversion on the way. But right now, um, Maja Center is very, very oriented toward intellectual conversion. As you so well put it, uh, oriented toward uh, the evidence for God from science and philosophy, the evidence for a transphysical soul that'll survive bodily death from uh, um, science and philosophy. Also, um, we look at um, the historical uh, evidence and we look at the scientific evidence for Jesus and his resurrection, some of which we're going to be talking about today with respect to the Shroud of Turin. And I might point out that there's some videos on our Magis website there that um, you can just click on it to uh, go to the section, the, the um, uh, landing page, it's called uh, Jesus, the reality of Jesus, and just click on the free resources and there you'll see um, a video on the Shroud of Turin, similar to what I'll be talking about today. And then uh, also we, uh, we give uh, resources too for um, the church, uh, contemporary miraculous phenomena, including Eucharistic miracles and uh, the Marian miracles. And we also uh, take a look at what we call our four levels of happiness or purpose in life. And why would an all loving God allow suffering and how to suffer well through your faith. So that's what Majus does. Credible Catholic, uh, which is CredibleCatholic.com, they put, uh, we put it into a form that could be used by teachers and students and parents. So this is really oriented, CredibleCatholic.com is really oriented toward young people and giving resources to teachers and parents and students, uh, you know, about how to solidify their faith. So we've got, you know, uh, PowerPoint modules uh, that are oriented, voiceover PowerPoints that uh, you can just download onto your computer, show them to your kids if you're a teacher uh, or a parent. And uh, the kids, of course, can always uh, look at uh, you know video stream online uh, and just look at it uh, as well. Uh, we've got a whole bunch of resources, but I would recommend that people just going to the website and wanting to get the basic uh, knowledge of what's there. If you just, uh, when you get onto CredibleCatholic.com, click on the seven essential modules and once you uh, click on there, uh, you'll see these seven modules, uh, the ones I just mentioned, 
uh, existence of God, uh, existence, evidence of Jesus, evidence of a soul, etc. Uh, all those modules are separated out in, in uh, some parts and they're uh, so totally self-contained. You don't have to be a scientific expert. Uh, our objective is to have teachers facilitate these videos. We can answer questions of various kinds. We have a whole new resource coming online called uh, the 91 Most Asked Questions. And uh, we put the, their little eight minute answers to all of the thorny ones, you know, but, you know, if God, you know, created everything, what created God, et cetera, all the way to the, the questions about the church, particular moral issues, et cetera. So all that is there um, and uh, will be there. And it just helps out our young people uh, so that uh, it helps out our, especially our teachers, our catechists, our parents who are really trying uh, to convey this uh, to our kids. Make no mistake about it, 42% of kids are very likely, who are now practicing believers, by the time they're getting out of college, you can depend on this. They will not be believers. They will be unbelievers. They're not going to just leave the church. They're going to leave faith in God altogether. They will be thoroughgoingly propagandized by atheistic and agnostic websites, which are now very prolific, and um, a lot of kids just buy into it, but there's no reason to because the evidence for God, the soul, for Jesus, the church is overwhelmingly good. More evidence from science and, uh, and philosophy today than ever before in the history of humankind for God, the soul, and Jesus. So um, that's our point is to prevent kids from jumping off the cliff because once they go into the agnostic or atheistic abyss, honestly, really hard to get them back off of it. If you can prevent the jump, you save yourself uh, just a, a lifetime of, of, of uh, pain and prayer, uh, trying to bring them back uh, into the faith. But evidence is needed and evidence we got. <laughs> Praise be to God. That sounds amazing. Absolutely amazing. I congratulate you on preparing all that in such a systematic way and easy to digest and access. Uh, the amazing thing about everything you said there, um, for those who want to know more, is you can go on the website and it's absolutely free to to access these resources. Free. This is phenomenal. And 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 thank you for for doing it this way. So teachers, parents, and students can access all this absolutely free at Credible Catholic and at Marja Center. Uh, we'll have the links uh, below as well. Amazing work, Father. That, that's great. Thank you. I am looking forward to um, the release of a, a special uh, uh, module of yours uh, for our academy later on in the year, and um, we great. can talk more about that at, uh, closer to the date on release. But, but really excited about about bringing that to our uh, future teachers for the adult education program, the Perusia Academy Certificate for Mission. So, very excited about uh, the course that you'll be um, doing for us there, as well. Now, Father, are you ready to dive in this topic? The Shroud of Turin. Um, this is a personal one for me. Um, I have to share, I have to say this at the start. My conversion um, happened, my encounter with Christ was in the tabernacle. It was on the door of the tabernacle that I saw this shadow appear. And on that that shadow I later discovered was the Shroud of Turin. And I have to show, this is, I've just released my book uh, just in 2020. And uh -huh. I've deliberately put on the front cover in the middle, the Shroud of Turin, which is the face I saw in the tabernacle, yep. and uh, and I also have the mosque and the and the and the, uh, the church there, just to yep. show where, where my influence, how Islam led me back to Christ. But I deliberately wanted everyone to see the the Shroud of Turin because that's the face I saw, and I don't remember seeing that face 
before I saw it on the tabernacle. When I later discovered what it was, blown away. And, and I'd love <laughs> yeah, to, uh, <laughs> love to learn. I love to, I'm just excited about sharing this for people. And it's very relevant now as we begin the journey of Lent and leading up to Easter, it's the resurrection of Christ. Uh, and that's the hope that we have. Although we go through pain and suffering, fasting and, and almsgiving and penance, uh, there is hope at, at the end. And, and so uh, Jesus, although dies on Good Friday, we know that he rises on Easter Sunday. And, and this shroud is, is, is rock solid <laughs> um, evidence that we can say that he actually did rise from the dead. So love to uh, dive in now and, and tell us a little bit about the Shroud of Turin. Why is it called the Shroud of Turin? We know, uh, what is it? Uh, well, first of all, it's a 14-foot linen cloth, 14 uh, feet by about three and a quarter feet. Um, uh, it's a linen cloth. Uh, it has a very complex, expensive weave. Uh, it definitely comes from uh, antiquity for us, from around the Middle East in, in that area. And um, it is thought to be the burial cloth of Jesus because it contains two remarkable things. Number one, it, uh, it has blood on it, and we're absolutely certain that it's blood. And that blood corresponds perfectly to the gospel accounts of Jesus's crucifixion. The blood has hemoglobin in it, AB positive blood type. That'll be more relevant in a moment. It also has a partial DNA profile. And uh, in addition to that, it has an admixture of ferritin and creatinine, uh, which are two enzymes that fuse together and synthesize when somebody undergoes a polytrauma. So, uh, which of course this man would have. Now, all this is going to be important to test the the, the theory that it could have been produced by a medieval forger, but uh, I'll go over the evidence again. Uh, it also, the blood has a, a serum uh, to plasma ratio that shows that it, it um, was, uh, the body was oriented on a vertical axis for quite some time as the blood was dripping before it was placed in the shroud. So that's the first amazing part is the blood on the shroud. But the second, which is much more important with respect to the resurrection, is the image on the shroud. That's the really remarkable uh, dimension. This, as we'll see, is the most unique image in the history of all artifacts in the entire world for all time. It has undergone more scientific testing and it has uh, like 123 different tests. And uh, among all of these things, uh, uh, the, the, the shroud has uh, it come up uh, smelling like a rose. I'll get to the dating uh, of the shroud, the carbon dating of the shroud in 1988 in a moment. But for the time being, that testing has all been absolutely 100% positive. But here's the deal. That image, as we will talk about, has to be produced by a tremendous burst of light. And I'll be talking about the evidence for this. And uh, that would be in the order of about six to eight billion watts of magnitude. That's, that's with a B, billion, like a half a million searchlights worth of light energy emanating from every three-dimensional point in this man's body. Uh, that's, by the way, highly unusual for corpses to do. And so uh, for all intents and purposes, we've got really a, a testimony to a miracle, but I, I need to detail that evidence in a moment. But it, um, what's important now for the moment is that the blood was on the shroud 
before the image was. Wow. And this is easily detectable because, you know, the, the um, actual blood acts also as a kind of a recipient of the image with that kind of a light um, volume. And so we can actually see the image projected on the blood itself. So we know that there was no artist sketch on top of which blood was placed but rather the blood is there without any kind of a sketch or image. And then the image comes over it. The same sequence that would have happened if that body had been authentically placed in a shroud and then the light burst thereafter. So hang on to all that. It's truly amazing, but that's the Shroud of Turin. And um, it, it um, unfortunately appeared to us uh, in the, um, uh, in the 1300s uh, with uh, Geoffrey de Charnay um, and uh, it, in Leary, France. And that, that's a difficulty because people say, well, how can you be so sure that it came from Jerusalem or, or Northern Judea? We can be absolutely sure of it. And I'll talk about the evidence that it came from Jerusalem and Judea in a moment. And I'll talk about the corresponding history that enables us to, as it were, trace the um, evidence of where the shroud was from pollen fossils uh, on the cloth, and um, then uh, uh, look at that compared with where the Mandelian, and I'll talk about that word in a moment, appeared uh, in the history of humankind in Edessa, Turkey, Constantinople, and so forth. So this is the fascinating shroud of Turin. Do I think it is the burial cloth of Jesus? Well, as a scientific person, I have to say that I can only be 99.99% sure because every scientific hypothesis has to be negatable. Uh, it has to be falsifiable. So I'll keep with my principle, but I think there is so much evidence that I will present today that I hope you will be 99.9% .9 sure too and leave the 0.1% for those uh, uh, who require scientific falsifiability. Wow, fantastic. Oh, there is a mouthful there, and um, <laughs> let, let's go through this. I mean, it, it might be good. You've clarified what the Shroud of Turin is not. So it's not a painting. It's not uh, uh, a photocopy of, of, of an image. No, no. the evidence that you're, we're going to dive into now will show that with, with the, uh, the light, the amount of power electricity that you, you described there, has, has created this, which is very unlikely for someone to even deliberately do, and back in that time as well. Yeah. Very curious to see um, how we can go through these things one by one. So uh, where to begin now with the evidence? Should we start with the dating first, or where's yeah. the best place to start? Maybe there. Yeah, I think, you know, because of that 1988 carbon dating, a lot of people think, oh, that shroud, it's a fraud. They, mm. they, they dated it to the 15th century in 1988, and that's all there is to that, right? And uh, so wrong. <laughs> that's, uh, they did, in fact, date it to the 15th century in 1988, but they didn't date it, namely the, the mm. linen shroud. They dated a strand that was taken from the linen shroud. And that strand came from a place that was very heavily burned in the fire of Chambéry. And in that uh, fire, um, uh, some silver from the little you know, box that the shroud was in, that uh, the silver melted and fell down upon the shroud. So if you look at the shroud's image, 
you can see on both sides, there's kind of these lines that are going down and this, you know, places where uh, the shroud obviously got burned in that fire. Uh, by the way, it was folded, the, the silver penetrated all the way through. Um, mm -hmm. And so you, you can see it, well, these sisters in the 15th century, they uh, didn't want to leave holes in the shroud, right? This beloved shroud. So they took cotton fibers, cotton threads, right? And they dyed it with a gum dye mordant that was white. And they used a technique called invisible mending. And they actually mended together with the dyed cotton that looks very similar to the linen, but very easily detectable, which one it is by thermochemical analysis, right? But they wove it right into um, the shroud there and um, then um, uh, patched it up and then put a, a you know, a cover, uh, I mean, not a cover, but a, uh, a backing on, uh, on the back of the shroud and sewed it in with the same technique. Well, the strand was removed from that burnt section that would have had no question the invisible mending. Now that was a violation of the protocols that were required in 1978 by what was called the STIRP protocols, the Shroud of Turin Research Project protocols, which required uh, seven different uh, samples be taken from seven different parts of the linen cloth not mm. from the burnt part of the cloth that could have other uh, particles or other kinds of fibers blended in there. Well, for whatever reason in 1988, that, that strand was removed uh, from that very controversial corner of the shroud, uh, right where there was a patching that was obviously done. You know, some people could almost be inclined to think that, gee, the people who did this were really trying to to get a bogus reading on the carbon dating, but far be it from me to point the finger at fraud, but it has in a court of law, a lot of fingerprints of something like that because they avoided all the legitimate places on the shroud to take a sample from. I mean, I'm not sure I get this whole thing, but anyway, here's what happens in the rest of the story. In 1998, uh, um, a, a thermochemist by the name of Dr. Ray Rogers, who is, by the way, he was at uh, um, uh, um, Los Alamos, uh, you know, uh, laboratory, which is the nuclear observatory that built the atomic bomb. Uh, he was down there and he's a big time researcher and the head of uh, a research area of thermochemistry and, and the head of a, a research journal called Thermochemica. Uh, Dr. Ray Rogers became acquainted with the Shroud uh, prior to that and was part of the Shroud of Turin Research Project. But when the carbon dating came in, he never examined the place where the strand was taken. He believed that everything was on the up and up when the sample was taken. And so he believed the results unquestioningly. However, because of uh, two um, uh, individuals, uh, who came along who were um, interested in the actual thread content and so forth and so on. Um, uh, most especially uh, uh, one guy, Len Marino. Um, um, uh, the, uh, 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 there were these sticky tapes taken throughout the 1978 uh, STIRP investigation. And so for like every kind of few millimeters, they have a sticky tape, right, that they put on the shroud and identified the exact place that these sticky tapes came from on the shroud. So when you correlate the sticky tape from the area that the strand was taken from, and um, that sticky tape is independent, right, 
what does the sticky tape reveal from the very spot where that strand for the sample of the carbon dating was taken from? Cotton fibers. And not only does it reveal cotton fibers, but cotton fibers that had a gum dye mordant, almost as if somebody deliberately chose a strand that would be, well, you know, older, uh, you know, uh, not older, but uh, younger than, uh, than could possibly have uh, uh, been imagined. But anyway, they found um, the cotton content. There's no cotton content in the actual shroud. It's a pure <laughs> linen shroud, no cotton content. So the fact that this sticky tape is revealing all these cotton fibers and that the Kybers had been dyed with a white dye to look similar to the shroud and using a gum dye mordant that was only available after the 11th century in Europe. Hello, you know, this is telltale signs of a bad sample. And so Dr. Ray Rogers at that time said, hey, this sample is invalid for dating the shroud. We have to go back to the original protocol of seven different samples. <clears throat> But then another fellow by the name of Dr. Tristan Casabianca, he came along and he said, hey, I want to get that raw data from the carbon dating because you can actually, with the raw data, you can do a statistical analysis to, to see whether there's stratification, variegation, um, you know, of the results from the carbon dating. Now, if there is stratification or variegation, what that means is that there might be some threads in the sample that are older and some that are younger. So uh, this is very, very important because if invisible mending was used, maybe there's some of the original linen, but maybe there's a predominance of the cotton. So um, he demanded actually on, uh, on many occasions over the course of many years to get the raw statistical data from the carbon dating from the British Museum, who held it, by the way. And uh, the British Museum ascertained, by the way, uh, for, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, the article that had been written for Science Magazine, you know, the, the authenticity of the dating and so forth. Well, uh, at the same time, finally, Casabianca, I think it was like the 30th time or something, not sure how many times he did it, but he finally on a Freedom of Information Act, just demanded that he get this data. And lo and behold, the British Museum released it. Don't ask me why after all those years, but they did. He of course subjected it to a, a rigorous statistical analysis. What does he find? Variegation and stratification so profound, it meant there's no possibility that you could have used that particular sample to date the shroud. To, to the 15th century, just no, no possibility uh, that it could do that. It, basically, the whole process was bogus. If we want another carbon dating, then it'll have to be done at a subsequent date. But I can tell you right now, there have been four tests that have been done, um, uh, you know, between 1988 and today. The four tests um, are a Fourier transformed infrared spectroscopy, uh, a Raman laser spectroscopy, and, and if people want to know what these are, I can, sure, they're explained in that, uh, if you go to that article called Science in the Shroud of Turin, right off the Maja Center website, Science in the Shroud of Turin, just go to majacenter.com, click on free resources, get that article, you can get all the processes. We'll put that in the link below. 
Oh, perfect. And then the third um, uh, test that was done was a, a mechanical compressibility and tension test. And finally, the fourth one that was done is a vanillin test. That's an enzyme that, uh, you know, that decays over the course of time uh, that's uh, generally uh, embedded in, in linen or linen cloths of a similar uh, nature to the shroud. So the, the, when you take those tests and you kind of average out all the test results from the four of them, it gives rise to a date of about 50 AD, plus or minus about 150 years with a 95% confidence level. Wow. So there's just no way this, this shroud came from the 15th century. I mean, that's this is just the, the tip of the iceberg that, that shows that this shroud did not originate there, but the, the other tests uh, pretty conclusively prove that. But then there's three external um, uh, uh, areas, we, we might call them uh, sort of an indirect form of evidence, right, um, that uh, also testify to the early date of the shroud. The first thing are those pollen fossils I mentioned a little earlier. Now, the pollen fossils are important because uh, they will, there are pollens that are um, indigenous to particular regions. And, and it's the quantity of the, um, of the, of the pollen fossils plus, uh, you know, the uniqueness to particular regions. Well, if you take a look at the shroud and uh, Swiss criminologist, uh, Dr. Monks Fry uh, did this uh, and, and categorized just huge numbers of pollen um, fossils embedded in the shroud. Well, the, the place with the largest quantity was Jerusalem and Northern Judea, just saying. Not only that, but there are um, uh, six uh, pollen fossils that are indigenous to Jerusalem and northern Judea, and four have never four pollen fossils have never been found beyond northern Judea anywhere in the world. So, I mean, that gives pretty clear evidence. It was in Jerusalem and probably in Jerusalem for a long time, and that's where it originated. Then there, again, I'll talk about this later. It went to Edessa, Turkey. That's the next largest number of pollen fossils with three um, uh, pollens that are indigenous to that area. And then to Constantinople, uh, a little you know, a ways uh, further away um, uh, from Edessa. And I can talk about the history of how, how that happened. And then finally, we get the least number of pollen fossils are from Leary, France, where it showed up with uh, Geoffrey de Charnay, and also um, in Turin, Italy, where the shroud remains today. That's the least number. So that gives you a little sense of that journey that the shroud has been on. But interestingly enough, the, shroud, the, the configuration of the palm fossils that are found in the shroud uh, are so fossilized that they are normally found in strata of the earth. So you could measure dates by going down deeper and deeper according to strata, a mm -hmm. technique called um, a stratigraphy that was invented, by the way, by um, uh, a Danish Catholic priest. Uh, so uh, just for the uh, fun of yeah, 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 Nicholas Dano, uh, Dr. Uh, well, Dr. Nicholas Dano and also Bishop Nicholas Dano. And uh, in any case, um, the long and short of it is uh, uh, they come from very early on, way before uh, anything like the 15th century. So we could probably uh, fairly date it to about the 7th century uh, AD, somewhere in that neighborhood, uh, but probably much earlier than that. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, strangely enough, 
on the man's eyes, you can see two Roman leptons. Well, that's not unusual because uh, people in Jerusalem uh, or people in, in Israel at the time uh, would generally take some Roman coins. If, if a man's eyes came open right uh, during the process of dying, um, they would just close the eyes and put these two little Roman coins that are about, oh, um, about, a, let's say, a third of the size of one of our pennies. Um, uh, put them on uh, the man's eyes to hold them down to keep them closed. So that wasn't unusual. But remember, uh, we'll talk about light forming the image. Inasmuch as light formed the image and not a chemical, not a vapor, etc., then it wouldn't be totally unusual for the image of the coin that's on the man's lids to also be projected along with the image of the body as well. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens. The coin's image comes right up onto the shroud. And um, what is even more interesting uh, is that those coins have four enigmas in them. That is to say, they're different from other Roman leptons minted in Rome at the period. And these four enigmas are very obvious. We have searched every numismatic collection in the world, and we have found that we simply do not have any others that did not originate in 29 AD in a special minting by Pontius Pilate in Jerusalem. Let me repeat that. These yeah. Roman leptons came from a minting in 29 AD by Pontius Pilate in Jerusalem. And they're sitting right there in the mansion. I'm sure a medieval forger went ahead and got two of these coins to, to protect the authenticity of his fraud. Uh, I don't know what a guy in the Middle East even knows. So, I mean, you know, it, it starts to get less and less likely. And then when you compare the last thing, just kills everything. It's the face cloth of Oviedo. Now, there's another uh, uh, relic, uh, which is as interesting uh, in many respects as the Shroud of Turin, and it's the face cloth of Oviedo. And this cloth um, uh, shows up, we have a provenance that goes back to 616 AD, and that provenance has, uh, we've got very strict records from ecclesiastical authorities like archbishops going right up to the time of the 700s. In the 700s, the, uh, the face cloth of Oviedo is presented to Isidore of Seville, a good, credible witness, who places it, or it builds a special sanctuary for the face cloth of, of Oviedo in Oviedo, Spain, obviously, in the cathedral there in Oviedo, Spain, where it was put and where it remains to this very day. So we've got a very established provenance going to 616 AD. So you're thinking, so what about that? What, what's so special about that? There are 120 bloodstains on that face cloth. I'll explain what the face cloth is in a moment. Yeah. There's 120 bloodstains in that face cloth that coincide perfectly with the 120 bloodstains that are on the, the facial part of the image on the Shroud of Turin. So if you look at the Shroud of Turin, you'll see 120 irregularly shaped bloodstains all over this man's face, the, the top of his head, the back of his head, going all the way down to the nape of his neck. You can see all of them. There are about uh, 70 on the front part um, and then about 50 bloodstains on the back part. Now, you, there's no image at all 
on the face cloth of Oviedo. And you'll see the significance in a moment because these blood stains, if you do what's called digital overlay photography, right? So you take a picture of those unusual blood stains when the face cloth is spread out uh, in a particular fashion, oriented, right, for what would happen because the face cloth is put around and then it goes over the top of the head down the back of the neck. So you kind of have to straighten it out so that it, it will have the same conformity as the front and the back of the shroud. But you put uh, a, a digital overlay of the front of the part of the shroud with the front part of the face cloth, back part of the shroud with the back part of the face cloth, you get a perfect coincidence. Do you know what the odds are of producing a, an exact replica of those blood stains on one of the cloths that doesn't even have an image of a face on it and getting a perfect coincidence with all those irregularly um, uh, configured blood stains? <laughs> it's simply astronomically improbable. Wow. I mean, th that you could do this except in one case where the two cloths touched the same thing. Now, if that happened, then that would be very explicable. Everything else is nuts. So to make a long story short, the only plausible scientific hypothesis that we have is that the two cloths uh, definitely touched the same face, the same top of the head and the same back of the head uh, at that, uh, that um, um, uh, corresponds to the Shroud of Turin. Well, wait a minute. We've got a provenance that's established to 616 AD for the face cloth of Oviedo. Then how could the Shroud of Turin have been produced by a medieval forger in the 15th century? Mm. Uh -huh. Already. Impossible. I will never believe a carbon dating that does not get the shroud back to at least 616 AD because I don't think it's even remotely possible to explain the coincidence of those blood stains. But that's my opinion. And by the way, it's not just the blood stains, the pleural edema fluid that is leaking out of the nose and the spittle that is coming out of the side of the mouth, all identical. All of the liquid profusions are identical. Okay. Now, you know, what's a, what's a face cloth? So, yes, uh, right, I was going to uh, ask that. That is <laughs> a perfectly good question. So, but anyway, the long and short of it, a face cloth was used by the people, the people in first century uh, Judea, uh, when, uh, let's say, a, a body was at a particularly macabre um, um, configuration of the face where there was a look like even the person was beaten or, you know, there's de was degeneration of the face and they wanted to honor the dead person. They didn't want, right, the jaw to be flopping, let's say when they're bringing the, the body from the crucifixion scene to the tomb, that the jaw would have been, you know, by that time, just, you know, flopping. The, the, the fluids would have been coming out of the nose. The face would have been absolutely macabre. macabre. And if you loved this man, you, there's just no way that you, you would not cover that face with what they typically did a face cloth. And they had this particular way of wrapping it and so forth, putting it on the face. And then when they get to the tomb, they would take it off the face. Then they would wash the face, but uh, I'll, I'll talk about not washing in a moment. And so uh, uh, this face was not washed, but normally they would wash the face and then put the body in the burial shroud. Now we know from John's gospel, right? That you remember when Peter and John go zooming down to the tomb, they, the, the one who, the younger one, John, who gets there first, peers in and sees what? He sees the face cloth rolled up and separately put into a place by itself. 
And then he looks over and sees the burial cloth. So if you just go down there to John 20, you'll see, right, that uh, that the cloth is, is separated off in a place by itself. Now that's, uh, I'm not kidding. I think this is exactly what happened. Both of these cloths are taken, but they're taken by two different groups of apostles. And and they, in, and when, of course, the invasion comes, when Rome is uh, thrown out of, uh, uh, I mean, when um, uh, uh, the Jewish uh, uh, temple is destroyed and Rome uh, invades and comes into Jerusalem and takes over, somehow these claws get separated, but it stays still in the Jerusalem Judea area, but not in a place where anyone can get their clutches on it. So the main thing, though, is we have a real provenance, and I just think the dating uh, question, did the, uh, did the shroud come from before uh, the 616 AD? Yes. I mean, that's where the coins come from. That's mm. where the pollen fossils are suggestively coming from. That's where the four other uh, dating tests uh, seem to suggest that it comes right from around the area of about 50 AD. So I think it's overwhelming evidence that this carbon dating was not only wrong, well, it might have been deliberately wrong, though I do not want to push the point because of course who would want to do something like that anyway that's uh, the story of the dating <laughs> this is just one aspect of what we were talking about dating <laughs> and you just yeah. gone through so much detail there to just 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 show um just how implausible it is to for this to be younger than than what, yeah. we, what we're saying here um yeah. now i'm i'm i didn't know up until this point about that that the facial the cloth that goes around the head can you describe just the process there then? This shroud is a burial cloth that goes over the front and the back of the dead corpse. And then yeah. this other cloth uh, is is put on the head. Yeah. And is that then taken off typically then the shroud is put on or or yeah. could that stay? Um, so could you describe the process here, what was going sure. on? Sure. So what they want to do is they want to solidify the jaw. They want to... Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, capture the, the liquid profusion. So they, when they're taking him off the cross, and I'm, I'll talk about why I think he was on the cross in a moment, because you can tell from the blood stains, which I'll get to momentarily. But when they're taking him off, they put the face cloth on him. Then they transport him to the tomb. Mm -hmm. Then they take the cloth off of his face. Okay. Now, normally, um, you would wash the body and then place them in the linen cloth. So uh, the body is placed on the linen cloth. So the, the uh, cloth is laid on the deck that's inside that tomb. And, um, and the body is placed on the deck with his, his back down. Then the actual, that's on seven feet of the cloth. And then the other seven feet is taken and it's just put over the top of the body and then sealed at the feet and then um, it's gone. So why this body of all the Jewish bodies who didn't get washed, why this one? Because we know from the gospel accounts that the Passover was near. They yes. couldn't violate the Passover. So they had to get the body into the tomb, get it into the shroud, get the tomb sealed before sundown. So obviously they were in a big rush which explains a whole lot of things about this image that wouldn't be found on other images. In other words, luckily they were in a big rush because now all the blood stains remained. Yes. And this is really important to our uh, investigation. But yes, I, we do have evidence from John's gospel that the uh, uh, face cloth of Oviedo is right there, um, uh, rolled up and is lying in a place that, uh, by itself. 
Amazing. Now, it might be important to know then uh, how do we track the history? So what took place, It's it's you described earlier, it moved around country to country and we only really uh, started testing it recently, but, but there was that first... Uh, patchwork done in, in, in the 1500s or 15th century. Yeah, but what, what what was going on in the first then 1500s? So can we track what would have happened from resurrection? We've got this cloth. We've got this uh, shroud. Where did it go from there? Would it have stayed in Jerusalem? Did the apostles keep it? Um, then when they died, did someone did, did it stay with some? How did it move around from there? It would be fascinating. Uh, do we have any idea of, of how it got to Turin, the journey from Jerusalem to Turin? Yeah, we do. We, we actually do. Um, you have to put together the history, but here's how uh, most uh, of our scholars put it together. For about, um, uh, let's say, about till about 270, maybe around 300, uh, the shroud remained in not necessarily Jerusalem, probably in northern Judea. So once the apostles are, um, you know, kind of... Uh, um, you know, trying to start the new church, contend with things. They take these two claws and they probably, because the pollen fossils, by the way, on the face cloth of Oviedo and the Shroud of Turin are almost identical, even the nice. unique and indigenous ones. So then um, the, it stays there till about 270, maybe 300 AD, right around that neighborhood in northern Judea. Then suddenly they move it to Edessa. So uh, something obviously happened that caused the church there in Jerusalem or northern Judea to say, hey, wait a minute, um, this, these costs could get confiscated or could, you know, be destroyed. So they obviously move it to Edessa, Turkey. Now, we know that it goes to Edessa because, remember, the proliferation of pollen fossils, the largest number are from Jerusalem and northern Judea. The second largest number is Edessa, Turkey. But that's not the only identifiable feature, right? Because there's unique and indigenous ones to Edessa, uh, pollen fossils to Edessa that are also embedded in the shroud. Obviously not forgeries because nobody did those classifications before the 20th century. So the idea then would be to say, okay, it stays in Edessa and we know when it goes out of Edessa to Constantinople. But anyway, it's in Edessa we, and uh, from the pollen fossils, but something happens in Edessa right at that time. There is a, um, a relic called the Mandilion. And the Mandilion is a, a face of a man, and it's said to be the face of Jesus Christ. And it's in a big wooden frame. And so this wooden frame is there and it's got this life-size face, uh, you know, in it. And of course it's protruding, right? I mean, they didn't have the glass in front of the, the wood, you know, it's just inside the wooden frame. Well, we know that the shroud was in a wooden frame and it was folded so that the face would be facing outward, but not exposing the rest of the body on the shroud. Because in all those tests I mentioned, all right, the scientific tests, you can actually see in um, the various uh, there are different kinds of spectral photography that were done on, on, uh, on the shroud. And you can actually see the creases that are still there. And if you look at those creases and you just configure them appropriately, you can see exactly how the face was, well, the, the shroud was folded, which puts the face on the shroud right out to the front, right? Hides the rest of the body. Now, and we know that that, um, you know, when the when it was put in that frame, the frame was closed and it kind of 
crushed the, the shroud so that the creases were very, very permanent because we know it was in uh, that, um, the, in that uh, frame for a good 300 years. Mm. So, that, and, and why do we know that the Mandelian is very likely the Shroud of Turin with the face, just the face part of the Shroud of Turin? How do we know? We know because the iconography of Jesus changed radically from a little town, well, at that time it was a real, Edessa was a center of commerce. And uh, so it wasn't a little town, but it was a moderate sized town. It wasn't a Constantinople or something like that. But anyway, from, we know that the this is where the iconographic uh, changes occurred because previously Jesus, Jesus's icons had been on a very round faced Roman person, right? Whereas now suddenly the icons come and they're with uh, you know an uh, elongated face right and a thinner elongated face. Secondly, prior to Edessa, we can see that the iconography of Jesus has very short Roman haircut right, very close to crop hair. Suddenly we now get icons where Jesus uh, has very long hair and in fact has very long hair resembling that on the Shroud of Turin. Thirdly, the iconography before Edessa, no beard, right? Romans were clean shaven. And then all of a sudden you've got a beard and it looks very much like the beard on the Shroud of Turin. And then there are about 20 scar marks. Um, there are marks that are on the Shroud of Turin and they start appearing in icons that go back to fifth century Edessa, Turkey. So we, uh, <clears throat> by the way, this <coughs> Frenchman, Paul Vignon, <clears throat> put all of this evidence together and it was really quite remarkable indeed. Yes. And so we see uh, this evidence is very, very uh, uh, clear that, oh, the Mandelian was definitely uh, the Shroud of Turin. We see the creases. We see the change in the iconography that goes back to Edessa. Very, very likely the Shroud and the Mandelian are one. Now, what happened? What happened was that in um, about, uh, I think it was the 900s, the um, emperor there in Constantinople decided he wanted this relic. So he laid siege to, um, uh, to Edessa. He just wouldn't let, um, you know, he surrounded Edessa, frankly, with uh, Eastern Roman troops and basically said, um, tell you what, I've got an offer for you. It's a very fair offer. You know, I'm going to give you the equivalent of a few hundred thousand dollars, uh, you know, in money, and I'm going to take this relic. That's a nice exchange. But if you don't, I'll strangle you. So, of course, the king of uh, Edessa says, well, that sounds like a fair offer and uh, just release us from the siege and uh, give me the money. And he gave it up. So we know that it goes, the Mandelian goes to Constantinople. Then we see, starting in about the 12th century, these crusaders that are zooming around, right? They're, uh, you know, all over the place there in the, in the Middle East. We see one of them, Robert de Clary. Uh, he comes uh, along and he, um, he, he claims in a letter that he sends back to fr France at the time, I have seen the cloth of Jesus's burial. He, he says it. I, he said, 
and is in a frame with the face showing, but in reality, it is the front and the back of the body. And I saw it hanging up where? In the treasury rooms there of the cathedral, I mean, of the emperor at uh, Constantinople. And uh, so uh, all of a sudden we begin to get these uh, impressions that there it is, the Mendelian, uh, the face part of it, uh, you know, which was called the Mendelian, is really the Shroud of Turin. Now, um, um, uh, around, oh, you know, in the Fourth Crusade, uh, at some point, um, uh, as you know, and, uh, one of the disgraces of all time for the Western Church, the Western Crusaders came into Constantinople and said, hey, let us in, we're your brothers, and of course, plundered the city and stole all the relics, and, um, you know, led to a a division between the Orthodox and the Roman Catholics till this very day. But uh, in any case, one of the people who was a leader in the Fourth Crusade was a fellow by the name of Otan de la Roche. Well, I'll make a very long story short. This leader of the Crusade happens to be the fifth generation ancestor of Jeanne de Vergy. Now, Jeanne de Vergy is the wife of Geoffrey de Charnay the very person who announces in the 1300s, I've got it, the burial cloth of Jesus. Everybody said, well, how did you get it? Because of course the Pope had already declared that anybody who stole relics at Constantinople was, well, not just excommunicated, but profoundly excommunicated and had to turn over all the relics. So of course, uh, Geoffrey de Charnay is not going to say, well, I got it from my um, fine relative who may have been excommunicated for stealing this relic, right? So he keeps his mouth shut, but nevertheless says, nevertheless, it's here. And people would look at this thing and they would, like yourself, have very religious experiences just by gazing upon this shroud. So there, you know, without any scientific investigation, of course, at this point, mm. but nevertheless, people thought this thing might really be authentic. And again, I'm going to make a real long story short that the shroud is put into a chapel at Chambéry. The, there's a fire at the chapel at Chambéry that the silver that I mentioned that kind of, you know, that went through, but the shroud image itself was safe. The bloodstains were safe, but nevertheless, it burned a little bit of the shroud along the sides. But the main part of the story is after that, um, the uh, the uh, 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 French officials that had it, in, in other words, uh, Geoffrey de Charny's family, basically gave it up to the Savoy family, who at that time had their uh, seat at uh, Turin, Italy, gave it up to them for, you know, big time castles and money and things like that. So there was a transaction that took place and off it goes to Turin, Italy, where it remains to this very day in the hands of the Savoy family. So it's uh, still there. Now the Vatican does have a sort of official say over what can happen and not happen, but it's still, uh, the shroud is in the hands of the, the Savoy family. So that's where it is today. Wow, wow. Now we have about uh, 10 minutes to go, Father. Oh. Just to do it. It's gone so quick. But I do yeah. want to make sure we get in the, the, the evidence of light. That now you talked about how this is not a painting. This is a this is produced by almost like an explosion of light. Um, yeah. Let's talk about that, and then and then I just have a final sort of closing question: yeah. the link between the shroud. I'd like to sort of see if there is a link between the veil of uh, Veronica and um, and the, there seems to be studies about the Divine Mercy image 
and then there's the the holy face medal. I mean, there's all these things, but I mean, we won't spend time on that. But I, I do want to uh, finish with the evidence of light. Um, and how do we know? How did this image get on this cloth? Yeah, remember all the stuff I said about the bloodstains because Jesus yes. had a very unique crucifixion, and yeah. that very unique crucifixion with the crown of thorns and the spirit hole and all that stuff—that's all emblazoned on the blood stain on the front. I mean, if the shroud is there's no question the shroud authentically validates the gospel accounts of Jesus's crucifixion in detail. But that's a story for another day. Let's get to the image because it is a fascinating thing indeed. First of all, this image is a perfect three-dimensional photographic negative image on a non-photographically sensitive linen cloth. Now that's really unusual. Now, when you think about it, you think three-dimensional, explain that, I will in a moment. For the moment though, let's just say that this image is so perfectly crisp, uh, just keep that in mind. And it's also, it's on the very uppermost surface of the fibrils. So th this, this, this image, whatever produced the image never sunk into the medulla of the fibers. The medulla is the, the middle part of a fiber or even into the middle of the cloth. So it's literally almost hanging on the uppermost surface of the fibrils of the cloth. Nevertheless, it's perfectly crisp right there. Okay, why does that eliminate for a second? Why does that eliminate um, the uh, vapor uh, suggestion or the chemical or uh, liquid suggestion? Why can't it be a liquid for, uh, for start? Because if it were a dye or a paint, it would have immediately, the dye or paint would have penetrated into the medulla of the fiber and into the middle of the cloth and into the cloths next, uh, the fibrils and fibers next door. Now, if it had gone into the fibrils and fibers next door, it would have made the image blurry. But more than that, uh, they haven't produced the actual image on the shroud. The shroud image doesn't penetrate to the medulla of the fiber. So no way is it a liquid. Uh, how about vapors? Vapors would have been worse because vapors coming up from the body would have also not only penetrated to the medulla of the fiber in the middle of the cloth, but it would have made the image even blurrier, right? Because the vapors would have spread out before it got to the cloth. Whereas if it was a liquid, it would have been a little bit more precise because it would have gone into the cloth and then spangled out uh, into the fiber, fibers next door. So the, the key thing to remember though is this image is way, way, way too crisp and precise uh, to be produced by anything like uh, vapors and liquids. And certainly um, you can't explain how it, it's sitting on the uppermost surface of the cloth. So how about scorching? That's another uh, big hypothesis. So maybe you know, the, a medieval forger uh, was putting some scorch images there, and that image is really a scorch mark. You can easily detect the scorch marks from what's called fluorescing. So if you, you know, kind of put a fluorescent light on it, there's a distinctive characteristic that identifies a burn in no time flat. Well, it doesn't exist anywhere on the shroud, except on those little corners on the side where you see um, you know, uh, the shroud was burned, you can see the fluorescing. But aside from that, on the image, no fluorescing. So no scorching, no heat. Well, if it's not produced by a vapor, it's not produced by a rub, it's not produced by any chemical, it's not produced by scorching or heat, then what's left in the physical universe to explain it? You got it, light. Now that means 
that this perfectly crisp image sitting on the uppermost surface, could it be produced by light? Yes, it can be produced by light. Hold on to that. We have done it in the laboratory in 2010. Paulo de la Sara was the first to do it uh, and his team, but uh, we'll uh, get, get to that in one minute. The main thing is what kind of light could produce this shroud? Well, the thing is, is remember, linen is non-photographically sensitive. So in other words, if you're gonna turn that linen into a piece of photographic paper, which is, well, into a photographic negative, which is precisely what you're doing, you're gonna have to make this super photographically sensitive, right? So, well, how much light would that require? As I already said, six to eight billion with a B, billion watts. I mean, have, have you ever stood in front of a searchlight? You know how much light one searchlight will uh, produce. Can you imagine taking a half a million searchlights and just focusing it on a 14 foot piece of cloth? I'm telling you right now, that's a burst of light. I mean, <laughs> it would we, not we only I mean, that's, a, that's it, an amazing amount. I mean, you yeah. what was the equivalent? What, have oh, we done it, that before? We'd be like about 10,000 miles away from the sun, oh. which would, of course, you know, fry you. But that leads to the question, hey, how could it be six to eight billion watts of light and not fry the cloth? How's that possible that, you know, this cause, I mean, well, here's the thing. It has to be done in one forty billionth of a second. So it has to be this super mega light, you know, pulsation in one forty billionth of a second. And if you had it one forty billionth of a second longer, there would not even be a shroud. In fact, there would no longer be any carbon remnants of the shroud. You get a bunch of dispersed molecules. So, I mean, uh, uh, that's how much heat this would be producing. So, well, wait a minute. W what kind of source can we have that would replicate that today? Laser, to be uh, precise, an ARF eczema laser. Now, of course, it would take 14,000 ARF eczema lasers, to, which is more than all the ultraviolet capacity we have in the entire world right now, in every laboratory in the entire world. But nevertheless, with 14,000 ARF eczema lasers, you could produce this image. And it would have to come out of a dead body because you can't make the laser machines, can't plant them inside the dead body. But of course, a medieval forger getting a hold of 14,000 ARF eczema lasers would be very difficult indeed. The point, of course, is this light is coming from the body for this remarkably short period of time, producing a phenomenon called vacuum ultraviolet radiation. And that pulses this thing right onto the shroud. Now, that's the first um, uh, characteristic that uh, should be noted. Now, as I said, in 2010, uh, Paulo de la Saro and his team actually took uh, uh, cloths that had spectral reflectance similar to the linen uh, used uh, in the Shroud of Turin. And they got those spectral reflectance perfectly matched, then used ARF eczema lasers and did produce images of the exact similar quality, that yellowish kind of stain, perfectly crisp, right? So that if this pulsating light from 14,000 lasers had come out of every three-dimensional point in the man's body, straight upward onto the cloth and straight downward onto the cloth on the man's back, then you could have produced this perfectly precise 
image on a cloth with the same spectral reflectance. And, um, you know, the testimony of De La Saro has been confirmed now by other people who have also replicated it. So that's pretty interesting. Now, here's the second uh, an, uh, an, uh, enigma on this. The second thing is that shroud, if you look carefully at the shroud, you'll see the bones, but around the bones are the flesh. Now, you know how an MRI works, it has layering in it, right? Yes. And so you can actually see MRI-like layering on the shroud so that the flesh around the bone is in perfect three-dimensional um, uh, symmetry with the bone inside. So it's like an MRI that's there. So it's not just a perfectly precise three-dimensional photographic, neg uh, uh, photographic negative image. It's a three-dimensional photographic negative image. That means that that cloth either would have to penetrate at least three sixteenths of an inch or more, three sixteenths of an inch into the body or the body has to go through the cloth with um, uh, three sixteenths of an inch or more. Now, here is the interesting thing uh, about um, that phenomenon. Uh, if the body, uh, if the cloth protrudes into it or the body goes through it, then that body has to become mechanically transparent. That is to say, it can no longer have the feature of solidity, physical solidity. It's got to become spiritual. You have to have a spiritual body. Now, if you look at the resurrection accounts, and there's too much for me to bring out uh, at this point, but if you look at the resurrection accounts of Jesus, what are the two features where the Christian uh, view of the resurrection differs completely from Second Temple Judaism's view of the resurrection. First thing, Second Temple Judaism says that this is going to be a resuscitated corpse that's going to live forever. So you're going to get your physical body back done, and you, that body's going to live. But Christianity says, no, no, it's going to become a pneumaticon soma. It's going to become a spiritual body. So that's the first mutation. The second Christian uh, mutation, of course, is that the body is glorified. Jesus appears and everybody is bowing down in worship. Jesus appears and the apostles are identifying him as hakurias, the Lord, which is the Greek translation of Yahweh, right? Jesus appears and the apostles are shocked and they think they're seeing a ghost. And so you, you look at this and you go, hey, this sounds like, uh, wow, Jesus really did have a spiritual body, really did have a glorified body, you know, that's shown in light with, you know, six to eight billion watts of light energy. And, he, and he's being transformed completely, not just spiritually, but transformed in every way, just as the apostles reported seeing him and St. Paul reports seeing him after his resurrection. Now, this is uh, really a, a, an amazing thing because it's emblazoned on this image. And, and there's, to my mind, there's no other natural explanation except for uh, what, what's, uh, you know, vacuum ultraviolet radiation, you know, at, at a, um, you know, uh, uh, six to eight billion watts or so uh, that can explain this thing um, um, to any uh, degree of certainty. So um, long and short of it is, you know, the Lord has kind of planted this relic in place that not only have the bloodstains that prove the, the, the gospel's accounts, the accuracy of the gospel accounts of Jesus's crucifixion, 
but he also has put an image on there that it has the two Christian mutations of Second Temple Judaism's view of the resurrection literally emblazoned on the cross, a resurrection in glory and light and a resurrection that is spiritual, mechanically transparent. And, and so when you, you look at this, you know, it's almost as if God implanted the evidence for all the scientists 2,000 years later to take a look at it. And he kind of winks and goes, gotcha. <laughs> This is phenomenal. Um, we're only scratching the surface. I can tell there's so much more that you can say on this whole topic. Uh, it, it, it's a course in itself, isn't it? I mean, it, uh, there is more information in uh, on the website there, Credible Catholic, or is it uh, Marja Center? Well, if you want this uh, article, uh, you can go to marjacenter.com. Yep. Um, you can also uh, get a version of the article if you click on crediblecatholic.com. Instead of clicking on the seven essential modules, click on the big book, then go to volume three of the big book. So you'll see it. It's got 24 volumes. Just go to volume three and zoom down to chapter eight of, of uh, there. And there you'll see an article called Science in the Shroud of Turin. If you want a full on video similar to the one I just gave you, then you go to MajaCenter.com. And you just click on free videos and resources, and there you'll see one called um, uh, the Shroud of Turin, and you can click on that. Or if you want the, um, the version for the students that has all the scientific experts, not just Bob Spitzer here, but the scientific experts talking about this um, in little mini videos that are embedded in um, the voiceover PowerPoints, you go to CredibleCatholic.com. You click on um, the seven essential modules, then you go to um, the fourth module, and that's uh, called, uh, you know, the reality of Jesus. When you get on the fourth module, just click it. Uh, the first part of the module talks about the historical evidence for Jesus, things of that nature. But the whole second part of that module is on the Shroud of Turin with all the scientific experts embedded there. And that might be a good place for the kids to start. So you go to CredibleCatholic.com, you just click on um, the uh, seven essential modules, then you go to module number four, the one that's for the 12 plus. So just go for the one that's for the middle schoolers and the high schoolers, 12 plus, and then uh, you can see their um, uh, the experts as well. And of course, in the articles, in the scientific articles, I've got all the articles to all the peer-reviewed medical journals and optics journals and, and thermochemical journals. Oh, that's so exciting. Thank you so much for that work. Please do yourself a favor and visit Credible Catholic and Marja Center. Uh, we've got all the links there um, and, and make the most of it. I am fascinated. I'm going to dive deeper in this topic because <laughs> I mean, it sparked my conversion, and uh, and I'm just I'm I'm falling more and more in love with our Lord, and and the evidence of the shroud just really just solidifies um, the faith there so much. So, uh, for, is there as we close? I, I just wanted to make a, I mean, it could be as quick as a yes or a no. I mean, we don't have time to dive in, and that could be its own show. But there is claims um, divine mercy image. Have you heard about the divine mercy image uh, dimensions being? Um, exactly the same as the shroud have you heard about this sort of evidence um, um i have but you know the divine mercy image and other images um have not been scientifically tested to the degree okay. 
uh, of the Shroud of Turin and the Face Cloth of Oviedo. The two really, really, really scientifically reliable ones are the Shroud of Turin and the Face Cloth of Oviedo. And so I have not really done studies on the other uh, two because of uh, Montpellier, the Divine Mercy image, simply because uh, it's very, uh, you know, difficult. And of course, uh, the Divine Mercy image goes back um, uh, to um, um, uh, Saint, um, uh, and Faustina there, yeah. Faustina, uh, yes. uh, Kowalska, and uh, it goes back to St. Faustina Kowalska and not back uh, to the time of Jesus. Uh, so, um, but there might be some really incredible parallels because I do think definitely St. Faustina was divinely inspired. I have no no doubt about that. Yeah, very fascinating. Um, thank you so much, Father. Uh, we are out of time. I, can't, I wish I can keep going here, but uh, I do encourage, again, everyone, I... Uh, I've mentioned this before. In, I've put it on the front cover of my testimony for a reason, the Shroud of Turin, and, and it's there dead center. Um, and I encourage if you'd like to read this story, it's at perusiamedia.com, uh, how Islam led me back to Christ. Um, but very interestingly, how the Shroud of Turin, what, what appeared to me. Um, Father, thank you so much. Uh, uh, can I ask, uh, it, as we are uh, in Lent uh, right now, leading up to uh, the resurrection, I think this will be unlike any other Easter for people after hearing these facts about the Shroud. Uh, what, just a final tip there and then a, and then a blessing, please. Uh, any, any just final things uh, people can reflect on or, or help deepen their experience in Lent and, and leading up to Easter? You bet. If you want, go to that article, the free article called Science in the Shroud of Turin, and zoom down to the section that's called The Blood Evidence and the Crucifixion of Jesus. Mm -hmm. I think you will experience a crucifixion. Uh, well, it's a very hard thing to read because this uh, Jesus experienced so much pain, but it's mm -hmm. all there in the detail, the number of whippings, the number of thorns, every detail that you could possibly want about the, the hands, the nails. So please uh, go there. I know it, it sounds very gory and difficult, but um, in, in a way you'll appreciate how what the Lord did to pay the penalty, not only for our sins, but also uh, that, he, uh, that he mercifully gave rise an unconditional act of love that would forgive us all. And please bow your heads and pray for God's blessing. And may the Lord of all consolation and reason, the Lord that brings together faith and reason, that brings together reason and revelation, bring you and endow you and inspire you with all of the evidence that he has left you but also with all of the inspiration that he has given you interiorly about his existence and love for you through Jesus Christ in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Father Spitzer. God bless you. We are praying for you, praying for the, uh, the great ministry and apostolate of the Marge Center. And please pray for us at Perusia. Um, and we're looking forward to getting you back on sometime down the track. Absolutely. God bless. God bless Thank you too, Cherville. Thank you, everyone. That was Father Robert Spitzer. Please do yourself a favor and visit the website, Marja Center, and stay in touch with us. That's another Perusia podcast. Uh, I'm Shabal Raish, your host. God bless you.